0: Hello, and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. My name is Jason Winsounis. I'm a senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'll be your host this episode for a topic on artificial intelligence, particularly the cooperations and frictions over it between China and the US. To get some perspective on this, I've invited Jeffrey Ding, a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, to share his expertise He is the China lead at the Center for Governance of AI, GovAI for short, which is part of the Future of Humanity Institute. On top of that, and most pertinent to our topic today, Jeffrey is also the founder of a weekly newsletter on AI in China that translates research and white papers from Chinese into English. His work is widely cited in Western media, particularly in the U.S., and he has worked at the U.S. Department of State and the Hong Kong Legislative Council. Last year in June, he also gave testimony to the U.S. Congress on the topic of AI. Some of what he spoke about there will probably come up in today's conversation as well. So welcome Jeffrey, welcome to Asia Perspectives.
1: Thanks Jason, glad to be here.
0: Now, as a subscriber to your newsletter, I was really happy to be able to bring you on. Uh, What you're doing there, I think, is fantastic in terms of not just educating on an important topic, but also helping to really open a window into another world, which because of language barriers, as well as other reasons, can feel really opaque. I think the world in general needs more of that kind of visibility. So maybe let's start right there. Briefly tell us about the newsletter, what prompted its creation, and what you hope for it to achieve.
1: Yeah. Initially, it started uh, very organically out of doing background research for a report I was writing on China's AI dream. And I was translating a 500-page book published by Tencent, which is one of the leading tech giants, and a Chinese government think tank. And I was just sending out some interesting chapters to colleagues and friends uh, in an email, and there was a lot of excitement about it. So uh, began to do a weekly email and scaled it up to a newsletter from there. So it's been a, it's been a bit of a wild ride. Uh, but yeah, now we have over 7,500 uh, readers and also over 150 paying subscribers who uh, support the work and contributions from other translators.
0: And now let's back up maybe one more step. Can I get you just to tell us in uh, an elevator pitch fashion You know, what is AI and maybe what it isn't, too?
1: The easiest way to think about AI is to think about different tasks um, related to human intelligence. So, perception, perceiving the outside world around us, uh, decision making, taking that information and then implementing an optimal decision. AI refers to substituting machine. processes for those human processes.
0: So when we're talking about AI in, um, say, medical applications, one of the big things that I always see is how much faster AI is able to diagnose, say, radiology uh, to be able to to read those. Is that something that uh, we can expect more of, that sort of Pattern recognition and like, are you able to tell us a little bit about how that even works?
1: Yeah. Uh, Pattern recognition is definitely a huge part of it. Uh, With the radiology example, that comes from advances in deep learning, uh, trained on large data sets of different types of scans. So for example, lung scans, and then, yeah, the machine Um, and the algorithm is able to recognize particular patterns uh, that would indicate, for example, pneumonia from uh, different lung scans. So it it does seem to be a technology that's advancing quickly in different domains, and the key part of it is that it's not just pattern recognition for lung scans. It's also pattern recognition for uh, translating language Uh, Also pattern recognition for being able to perceive stop signs, uh, which could potentially enable autonomous vehicles. So the key part of AI is that it's a general purpose technology that will transcend uh, multiple application domains.
0: Now, In your research, when you're you're reading these uh, papers from China and, and looking at the different things that are happening, Are there, say, top three most interesting papers from China that your team has translated? You know, what were the ones that made you really stop and think, oh, wow, this is this is something that could have a big impact?
1: Yeah, in terms of academic papers, uh, we don't particularly translate too many of the academic papers because usually the top academic publications from Chinese researchers uh, get published in English language forms. Uh, So the top papers will usually be uh, preprints on Archive first and then submitted to some of the top AI conferences like NeurIPS. Uh, So as an example of that, which uh, doesn't really count as a Chinese paper, or at least the lines are blurry, um, but it's an interesting example, is uh, ResNets, uh, residual networks, uh, which are uh, really important in terms of uh, A method for deep convolutional models. Uh, So just adding, uh, being able to add layers and layers um, of neural networks and train deeper and deeper networks. And it's a very fundamental advance. And that came from a team of four researchers at Microsoft Research Asia. So that is based in Beijing, China, uh, but it's a US tech firm at Microsoft. And yeah, those four Uh, Researchers were all of Chinese ethnicity. Um, One of them now works at Facebook, Kai Minghe, uh, and three others work in China's uh, AI startup scene. Uh, So that's one of the really important advances in terms of academic breakthrough publications. But um, if you look at the macro picture of overall academic articles, uh, the major contributions uh, at kind of the fundamental uh, frontier of machine learning and AI, those are mostly coming from uh, US, UK institutions.
0: Now, part of what you study, as I understand it, is not just technology, but also international relations around that sector. and we're really seeing that convergence come into the spotlight these days, especially with a kind of silly piece of software that teens use to share dance moves, TikTok. Uh, just about a year ago, I was working on an EIU paper titled China Icebergs, where we tried to highlight trends that were just starting to poke through the surface really, but you know could have a big implication uh, than what might just be visible on the surface. And for that, we interviewed people in several specialized fields in finance, automotive, consumer sectors. Several of the people we talked to mentioned TikTok as something to watch. You know, They found it notable as the first Chinese app to really go global and cause a sensation. Only I don't think any of them meant it in the way that it's come to play out recently uh, with it becoming a political football. The people we interviewed were all quite optimistic, actually, Uh, But now it seems that the app has become rather vilified in the U.S. to the point of being banned, maybe, or not. It's always hard to devise fact from theater with the current U.S. administration. But whether TikTok poses a security threat or not, it seems to have been made an issue. So much so that in China, there now seems to be some thinking that the country should also take steps to protect its AI intellectual property. And to that end, uh, a sale of TikTok could actually be blocked on the Chinese side, even though demanded in the US. Now, that story is still unfolding as we discuss this. So it's probably best not to get into the detail that might prove irrelevant in 15 minutes or so. But after that long spiel, I do have a couple of questions embedded in there for you. First, do you see a threat in the way that the US government is making it out to be and in general do you see this squabble as something that could be chilling for cooperation among science and uh, researchers like yourself you know what are the wider implications for everybody else
1: there are some real risks with TikTok associated with uh protecting personal information of american citizens uh there's potentially some risks uh, with any social media platform that has wide reach and the types of messages that get promoted there and who's in control of those messages. Uh, In terms of your specific question about how, what that says about the U S China tech relationship, I think probably the thing that presents a deeper challenge is the, is the scrutiny on WeChat uh, because that's where there's actually more communication um, across people based in China and people based in the U.S. Uh, for TikTok, there's not as much of that type of communication because TikTok is basically the international version of Douyin, uh, which is the app in China, and there's not uh, an interface that allows communication across those two apps, whereas WeChat allows communication. So that the scrutiny on WeChat and uh, the ability To access WeChat uh, is really important to build ties between, yeah, the researchers I'm following and translating and learning from in WeChat groups. Uh, That really informs my research. Uh, And also, especially um, Chinese international students, visiting scholars, visiting academics who uh, are also bringing their expertise and their networks in China to the U.S. innovation ecosystem. Uh, That seems to be the bigger threat. Um, not to downplay the, the TikTok threat, uh, but I think relative to the, the news coverage and the buzz, uh, I would put more emphasis on WeChat as uh, yeah the more salient threat to a harder form of decoupling, perhaps.
0: So my experience with working with people in China is that they don't answer their email anymore because internally they all use WeChat. If I send an email to somebody in China, it might take two weeks for them to even see it because it's email is almost going down the road of uh, like the fax machine it's just nobody uses it
1: yeah yeah that's that's definitely true
0: but what about the the, the collaboration aspect on the science uh front I, have you seen any backing off yet or, or consequences from the, like a tiktok type fracas
1: i think it's a little bit too early to tell i think there's a. Uh, really good report from digi china which is a initiative of new america and stanford where they've tracked all the different policies targeted towards decoupling so whether that's export controls like you mentioned before uh, forced sales uh forced uh de-investments like we're talking about with the tiktok case uh or whether it's visas right Um, visa restrictions on visiting researchers. There's a range of different policies, and there's a lot of uh, buzz. Uh, The question is, how are those going to be implemented? How are those going to be enforced? What are the second-order chilling effects and spillover effects that come from perceptions people have about these policies? I think it's too early to tell on all those fronts. I'm relatively optimistic that uh, the U.S. and China tech ecosystems will be coupled for life. even if there is some type of decoupling. I think that there's almost a special relationship, uh, similar to like the US and UK in political terms or cultural affinity terms. Uh, But there's almost a special relationship between the US and China in science and technology. Uh, We are each other's uh, largest international collaborator on papers and publications uh, uh, for the ones that are internationally co-authored. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of indicators that show um, that's that the U.S. and China will still be coupled and are even growing more coupled. So um, payments for technological licenses, um, the, I think the IMF tracks those, and those have continued to increase um, year after year from uh, Chinese companies buying uh, U.S. tech licenses. Uh, so I think I'm not convinced that there's going to be a very hard decoupling just because... Um, I don't think anyone has done the actual tracking of the effects um, and can show the indicators of this um, type of decoupling. And I think a couple of those indicators that I just mentioned will remain sticky and resilient and may even grow more coupled in the future.
0: So that gets close to what you were talking about when you gave testimony to Congress last year. Can you tell us you know, briefly why you were there and what was the message you wanted policymakers to hear?
1: Yeah. So last summer, uh, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, which is uh, the Congressional Commission uh, on U.S.-China Relations, they asked me to give testimony to assess the relative capabilities of China and the U.S. in AI. Uh, it's a hot topic it's a sexy new technology. So there's inevitably been a lot of hype and comparisons between the two countries. Yeah, my argument was that China is not poised to overtake the US in the technology domain of AI, and that the US maintains structural advantages in the quality of inputs and outputs into AI, uh, the fundamental layers of the AI value chain and key subdomains of AI. And part of that conclusion came from trying to more systematically slice up this really fuzzy concept of national AI capabilities. So what are we even comparing in the first place? And I just tried to take three different cuts at it. So one cut was looking at scientific and technological inputs. So that would be how much funding are you putting into this? um, versus, And how much like, AI talent do you have um, versus outputs, which is what types of papers are you producing? What types of um, patents are you actually producing? Um, And the second cut was to divide national AI capabilities into different layers of the AI value chain. So foundational technology, like who is producing the open source technology that is the backbone of all these different AI applications people are building, the technology layer, And then the application layer, which is the end devices that are being sold or the end services that are being sold. Um, And then the third cut I took was just, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, AI is such a general purpose technology, you almost have to separate separate it out into different subdomains. So computer vision, whoever's ahead in computer vision might not be the leader in predictive intelligence, um, and that might not be the leader in natural language processing. So, trying to take that more comprehensive approach, uh, I came to the conclusion that the US is still pretty far ahead in national AI capabilities.
0: So, I watched some of the testimony that you gave, and you gave a bunch of numbers that illustrated basically what you were just saying, uh, which I actually found surprising because the narrative, at least on this side of the Pacific, is that companies like Sense time and products like facebus uh, Face++ is where China is really far ahead. You know, so for our audience today, do you still have those stats uh, available? Can you tell us wh- what those were?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the companies that you've cited are really good examples of where China is ahead in particular subdomains. But facial recognition technology to enable more precise surveillance is not the only thing that AI. Presents opportunities for, right? And it's not necessarily like the the important part of general purpose technologies. They lead to an economy wide boost in productivity growth. And I don't really understand why there's so much focus around whether China's ahead in being better able to surveil their population, because that doesn't seem to lead to an economy wide productivity boost that like past GPTs have done, like electricity. So if you take a broader view of Uh, AI is this domain that is not just uh, facial recognition for narrow purposes. Um, I think some of the numbers are pretty favorable uh, for the U.S. So um, while China leads in overall AI papers produced um, in 2016, those papers were 15 percent less cited than the global average. So not even at the average, Um, whereas U.S. AI papers were cited 83 percent more than world average. Um, you, you find a similar quality versus quantity distinction in terms of patents. Um, China ranks fifth, far behind the U.S., uh, which ranks first in terms of highly cited patent families. Um, and um, only four percent of patent applications first filed in China are then filed in other jurisdictions, which is a good indicator for the competitiveness of that product uh, and the and the validity of that patent being an indicator of good technology. So those are just some of the numbers. Um, The full written testimony has more that we can get into. And I think there is some degree of uncertainty, right? Um, With all these types of estimates, uh, different organizations like Center for Security Emerging Technology and uh, another U.S. think tank, uh, Institute of Defense Analysis, they've tried to tackle this, what would seem to be a simple question, who's spending more? Uh, government R&D on AI and both of those reports concluded that it's just too uncertain um and this idea that like China's vastly outspending us on AI there's just not enough evidence to bear that out
0: and when you mentioned uh sense time and and how that technology is not necessarily uh contributed to economic development i think that's a really interesting point point. and it brings me to a kind of a, a gee whiz part of of AI technology you know, from your perspective with all the research that you've reviewed, you know, what are the uh, applications that you think could give, you know, a real economic boost generally?
1: That's, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'm, I do for, for my dissertation, I look at a lot of historical case studies. Uh, so the, the, through line historically, at least, and it may not apply to the current period because uh, the structures of economies and leading economies has changed. Uh, But in the past, a big factor has been uh, the effect of general purpose technologies in the manufacturing sector as a whole. So one of the key ways through which electricity uh, allowed US productivity growth to surge was factory electrification. And instead of factories being driven by belts and shafts connected to a central steam engine, uh, they could eventually be driven by electric motors powering individual machines. So when the central engine breaks down or one shaft goes out, um, the whole factory wouldn't grind to a halt and not all the machines would have to operate according to a single schedule. Uh, You could drive machines uh, based on the schedule and power level. That was the most efficient. And that just leads to an economy-wide boost in terms of any type of factory making any type of thing uh, gets X times more productive. So, yeah, there are similar analogs um, in the AI case. Uh, The easiest would just be map it directly onto the manufacturing sector. I've done some translations in China AI uh, looking at smart manufacturing, and these are less sexy or less... um, less newsworthy as facial recognition for surveillance, um, which of course is like troubling for a lot of other human rights concerns um, and other political concerns. Um, But when it comes to productivity, uh, the more important um, applications of computer vision might be in um, machine quality inspection. So using computer vision to figure out if you can find defects in making knives before they get to the end of the production line and you have to start all over again. Uh, So simple things like that could perhaps increase Uh, the efficiency of production lines substantially.
0: So the factory example is interesting. Uh, And to me, it sounds like more of, say, an augmentation rather than uh, a straight-out replacing of of human activity with, with AI, which I think is the narrative that I hear generally, that AI could easily create more jobs than it replaces, similar to the way the desktop computer did. Uh, as a researcher in the field, would you agree with that?
1: That I think is something that uh, a lot of economists are much more plugged into than me. So I'd um, I think uh, Darren Asimoglu at MIT is working on stuff related to this. Uh, I think Carl Frey and Michael Osborne at Oxford have also done some studies on this. Uh, and there's it's I think it's a contested and important topic. Um, and there's probably evidence that goes both ways. I I've seen evidence though that compared to past waves of automation, uh, this current wave may displace more jobs than it creates. Uh, so that will uh, definitely pose an added challenge. Uh, but I'm I'm not completely sure on the literature for this topic.
0: Now, one narrative I hear from China watchers is that China generally is much better at deploying technology uh, or is faster at deploying it than in the West. High-speed rail comes to mind. Uh, But also firms like Tencent and Alibaba got so big, at least in part, because they have a willingness from a corporate culture standpoint to fail fast and iterate. Do you see that as uh, happening with AI as well? Like that same sort of fast deployment in China?
1: I think it's too early to say. So a good example is uh, scan to pay applications. So there's a lot of hype around this uh, this idea that uh, using facial recognition to pay for pur- purchases is just scaling up much faster in China. Uh, but even in China, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of difficulties with large scale diffusion. So even with large subsidies from Alibaba and Tencent to support um, Alipay and WeChat Pay, uh, respectively. Though the, a lot of merchants and vendors have not bought the machines or can't afford to invest in the machines uh, to run the face to scan algorithms, uh, and consumers aren't really that uh, used to or willing to uh, adopt it. Uh, I think you're seeing more consciousness among Chinese consumers as well of personal privacy, uh, especially from companies leaking their data and more cross national surveys have found that like Chinese uh, respondents are very uh, very concerned about uh, their facial data um, and the privacy of their facial data. So I think, it's too early to say, uh, the high speed rail and the mobile payments examples are interesting of this are are interesting cases of fast to deploy and fast to scale. Uh, but I personally wonder if we're not highlighting a lot of the cases where stuff didn't scale. Um, so the cloud, uh, has definitely diffused much faster. Um, in developed countries, uh, developed economies, uh, overall digitization rates are relatively low in China. Connectivity rates are relatively low. Um, smart, um, smart robots like welding robots, uh, diffusion of those in Chinese factories is much lower than like us and Japan. Uh, so I wonder if this fast to deploy meme is more a product of a few isolated examples that might be industry specific, um, rather than a general trend.
0: Now, in one of your newsletters, number 71, for any listeners who want to go into detail and get to the source material, you gave a really detailed explanation of some of the hardware issues involved with current tech tensions, and I definitely recommend that to anyone who wants to go deeper on that subject, but there was something tangential in there that you opened the the newsletter with. Uh, It was this notion of issuing a correction, and I want to bring that up here now because uh, the thing you wrote in the opening, and I'm going to quote you quoting someone else because I feel like it's quite true, which is, studying China is a continual process of saying, I don't know in better ways. So taking into account, you know, when you started your newsletter until now, since this is supposed to be an eye-opening learning podcast, you know, are there things that you believed when you first started doing that newsletter that you have since changed your mind about? You know, Can you share any of those aha moments with us?
1: One of the big things I've updated on is when I was first doing the newsletter and was like when I was first writing Deciphering China's AI Dream, I spent a lot of time analyzing the central government's policy. So looking at how the AI plan fitted in with the internet plus um, plan and the Strategic Emerging Industries Plan, and then also related plans in smart manufacturing and robotics. And I focused a lot on central government actions. And I think since then, I've updated a lot more towards uh, even that July 2017 uh, new generation AI plan uh, led by the state cabinet. Uh, that was very much following in the wake of and drawing on Templates and momentum that was already happening at the local level and by companies themselves. Uh, so for me, that, that has led to uh, looking at more of what's happening actually on the ground level, at the local level, at the provincial level. Um, so I'm, I recently did an essay for Nesta in their collection on China's AI policy where I focused on two such clusters, Uh, One in Hanzhou and one in Hefei, uh, where it's been the local government setting up these AI clusters, uh, AI towns in Hanzhou's case. And then they partner with uh, two anchor tenants. Um, One is usually a top university, like Zhejiang University in Hanzhou, and another is a tech giant like Alibaba, which calls Hanzhou home. And then that becomes the cluster for more startups and more entrepreneurs to come in and come into this AI town. They can apply for cloud computing credits. They can apply for office subsidies. They can apply for R and D expenses. Um, And just getting to that more on the ground level of like how, uh, how industrial policy gets implemented, how strategic technology policy gets implemented. That's been one of the big things I've updated on where it's not um, maybe there's a signal being sent by the central government. um, and maybe maybe that's really useful and that organizational guiding force is important, but, but much of the real action uh, is happening at the local and provincial level.
0: That's a great point that it probably describes a lot of the, the Chinese economy. So great. Thank you for bringing that up. Now, A lot is focused on the U.S.-China tensions, but obviously, you know, there's a lot more in the world than these two superpowers. What about countries, other countries or other regions, you know, who else is making advances in AI? Do you see much from the rest of Asia, say Japan or Korea?
1: Yeah, that point that you make is one of the big blocks that I'm trying to get around, which is I think of things very much in like this US China binary. But when I read Chinese language materials, and when I I read what Chinese scholars uh, and thinkers are conceptualizing and how they're framing things, oftentimes, it's not just US China, oftentimes, the comparators for China, in their case, are Germany, or Switzerland, or Japan, uh, like you mentioned. And so uh, bringing it back to the intelligent manufacturing case that we talked about earlier about using uh, machine vision uh, to do quality inspection of like knife defects on the production line, uh, articles about that, the comparison is towards how China can close the gap with Germany and Switzerland and the Japans of the world that are having are have have much more efficient manufacturing lines and have adopted some of these um machine vision and quality inspections uh, to make sure that they don't don't have a lot of defects at the end of the production line. And yeah, I think a lot of the focus in China is trying to escape this middle-income trap. Uh, And that's why I've emphasized the productivity angle so much, the manufacturing angle so much, uh, because they want to get to where Japan and Germany are in that sense as countries who have escaped that middle-income trap.
0: So I think we've probably used up our time. So thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jeff. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: And why don't you give the web address for your newsletter? So for any listeners who want to sign up for it, they'll know where to go.
1: Yeah, uh, you can find China AI Newsletter at ChinaAI with just one A. So C-H-I-N-A-I dot Substack
0: Thanks again for your time, and thank you as well to our listeners for spending the half hour with us. For more on EIU research, please visit our website, perspectives.eiu.com. And if you're interested in the report that I mentioned at the top about what's under the surface still in China, when you get to the website, type in China icebergs into the search box, and that will take you to the report. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email to asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and please subscribe.